1 John chapter 5, follow as I read, beginning at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. If you listen to Alistair Begg, sometimes you will hear him at the end of one of his sermons say something like this, what you would hear on an airplane coming from a pilot saying something like, we are now going to begin our descent, put up your lap trays, put your seat upright, and put your seat belt on. We're coming in for a landing. Well, we're sort of doing that with the, uh, the, this first epistle of John. Um, we're coming in for a landing. And... Uh, We're not going to quite get there today. We're going to go down to 20,000 feet, and next week we hope to land it. Um, But we want to look this morning at these verses, verses 13 through 17. And as John is closing here, he is giving encouragement to his readers, to these believers to whom he has been writing. And what we find in some of these verses is some Christian certainties. It's a wonderful thing as a believer that there are things that we know and we are assured of, promises that God has given to us. And that's a wonderful thing, things that we can stand upon and truth that upholds us, certainties concerning life and eternity. Well, the first thing that that John speaks about here is the certainty of eternal life. And John here gives us the very purpose for his writing. As he's concluding this letter, we can tell he's beginning to come to the end of the letter because he says to them here in verse 13, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. There is this certainty that you can have as you have believed on the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember in in the Gospel of John, which is Big John, this is Little John here, but in Big John, John is writing with an evangelistic flavor. When he gets to the end of that book, he similarly ends it, and he says, I'm writing these things as I've spoken about the life of Christ, that you may know that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So John sets out in his gospel the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who uh, spoke these truths to his disciples as they listened. 
the one who gave the wonderful I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I'm the bread that has come out of heaven that gives life, spiritual life, to this world. I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep that they might be saved. And so this book is evangelistic. It is good to share with others as you share the gospel with them. It is showing us the identity of Christ, the words of Christ. And John says, I'm writing so that you might believe on Jesus and that you might have life in his name. But as he's writing this little epistle here, he's writing so that those who have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may know, that they may know and be assured that they have this life, that they have this eternal life. This is why I'm writing to you. And it's necessary because they had false teachers that had grown up among them in the church. And they had worshipped with them. They had been with them for some time. But suddenly they began teaching things that were contrary to what the apostles had spoken concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And these were well-educated men, erudite, and they, they spoke well and were fluent and very influential. But eventually they left the church. They went out. They were preaching another gospel. They declared that Jesus was just a man. He wasn't the son of God. And they preached another gospel and another Jesus. And this may have been unsettling to some of these believers. I mean, these were well-educated people. They were very influential. They've heard these things. And maybe some of them are beginning to wonder and doubt, did we miss something? Well, John is writing back to them to encourage them to help them to know that as they have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have eternal life. It is in him and in him alone. He has the words of eternal life. These that went out from you, they were never really of you. They were not true believers. And so John is writing here, and he wants to assure their hearts. Maybe some of them were having a crisis of faith, and sometimes we can do that. In our Christian life, we can have times of doubt, and John wants to assure them and speak to them. Notice in verse 12, he says there that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And now to you who have noticed, he says, who have believed in the name of the Son of God. You have been taught by the apostles that he is the Son of God. He is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have believed and you have put your trust in him. I want you to know that you have eternal life. That you have life in the Son. You're holding fast to him. You're believing in him. And don't waver. Because in him is life and you have life in him. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, said that John was writing not to persuade unbelievers of the truth, 
of the Christian faith, but rather to strengthen Christian believers who might be tempted to doubt the reality of their Christian experience and to give up their faith in Jesus. John writes to encourage them, and like, a, like the good shepherd, John comes alongside of them to encourage them and to care for them. And notice he says, I've written to you who believe. You have believed in the name of the Son of God and you have eternal life. By believing in him, you have this life. This is a truth of the gospel that that we don't bring anything to the table in terms of our salvation. There's nothing that we do, nothing of the work of our hands by which we can be saved. All of our works are good works that we think would make us acceptable, God, our filthy rags. But we come as empty-handed beggars and we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is forgiveness in him. There is life that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And so here it is those who have believed. It's not those who have worked hard, who've made a good run. No, it is those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, they have believed on his name. The name there is representative of all that is true about Jesus. Everything about his person, about his work. And as apostles, they had been taught by John and others about Jesus. And they had learned about him. And they have cast the full weight of their soul upon this one. His person, his identity, the very son of God that came into this world and became flesh was made like unto us in order to redeem and to save sinners who died on a cross. You have believed in the name of this Lord Jesus Christ and you have eternal life. You can know And be assured that you have life because you have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to notice something here. As John speaks about the salvation, he doesn't mention it as being salvation. We find that in the scriptures often. But oftentimes, salvation is described as it is here as eternal life. Everlasting life. It is a life that we have received from God. When we think about salvation, it's not some ticket that God gives to us when we trust in Christ, kind of like Monopoly, when you get your ticket, you know, to get out of jail free. You kind of stick that on the side there. If you ever need that, you'll use it. It's not like that. And it's not like some insurance policy. If you would go to Bryce and you want to get some insurance, you know, you sign the papers. There's a transaction that takes place. You take the your papers home, you put it in a file and hope you don't have to need those. It's not like that. This salvation is life. It is a kind of life, a quality of life. It is a life that is given to us by God. So Christians have become partakers of eternal life. It's an actual spiritual life. 
Ephesians 2 tells us that as we were born into this world, we were dead on arrival. We were spiritually dead. There was enmity in our heart against God. And we were sheep going our own way, living life for ourselves. We were children of wrath. We were born into this world again without life, a heart that was stony, that had no spiritual life. But in the gospel, in the grace of God, he imparts life. And John's talked about this throughout 1 John, about the new birth, being born of God. This is something that God has done. He has taken out a heart of stone and given a heart of flesh that is alive unto God. There is now this life that is in us, born in us by the Spirit of God. It is a real life by which we know God. It is a spiritual life that comes through our relationship to Jesus Christ, that we are in him and we have this life in him, in union with him. And we read about that in John 15, there is this intimate relationship that we receive life and nourishment from him who is the vine. We read in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. That's represented in our baptism. When we are baptized, we are confessing that we have died together with Christ. We've died to what we were. We were fallen in Adam, that old man that was controlled by sin and going our own way. We died to that old man. And we've been raised up to new life, to walk in a new way. I have been crucified with Christ. And not, I, I, I now live. It's, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. He lives within me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for me. I didn't get that all right there, but Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in us. I remember Mark Webb when he was here using the illustration of a young little boy who was like four foot tall. And he said to his mother, you know, if I accept Jesus Christ into my heart, won't he stick out? (laughs) And he said, yes, he should stick out. He should be seen in our life. But this is the life that we have. It's not just some transaction, but it is this work of grace that brings about fellowship with God, the life that we enjoy in Christ. And this new spiritual life is going to yield fruit. And John has been talking about that as we've gone through 1 John. It is going to yield the fruit of faith, a faith that focuses on Christ as the very Son of God and trust in him. So it has a right understanding of who Christ is. It is going to be demonstrated in love, love for God, love for his people. And it's going to be demonstrated in obedience, a life of holiness, If we know that he is righteous, we know that everyone who is born of him practices righteousness. These will be the marks of those who are born of God. They don't do this perfectly, but this will be characteristic of them. And this is why John is saying here 
that I write these things to you so that you may know, you who have believed in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this life is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, another thing that we notice here is that this life is described as being what? It is eternal life. It's eternal. It's not something that could ever be lost. It's not something that could ever be forfeited. It's not something that could ever be taken away from those who have been born of God. And so John wants them to know this. He wants them to rest in this. He wants them to rejoice in this, to know the peace that comes from this. And this original purpose of John remains for us today. God wants his people to know, Christ wants his people to know, if they're truly joined to him, the peace that comes, the assurance that comes from what Christ has done on their behalf, that they are secure in him. That as Jesus said, there is no one who can pluck them out of my hand. There's no one that can pluck them out of my father's hand. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants to have his people know that today. John's word remains true today as well. And I hope as we have been going through 1 John that You've been able to look at your life, if you're a believer, and say, by God's grace, I see his fingerprints upon my life. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to follow Christ. I'm trying to live a godly life, trying to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. My trust is in Christ and in Christ alone. And I hope that as we've gone through this, that God is assuring your heart of these things. But maybe you're here, and as we've been going through First John, maybe you know you're looking at your own life, and it doesn't really reflect that. What John is saying here about what it means to belong to Christ doesn't really doesn't apply to my life. I'm just like a sheep going my own way. I really have had no interest in Jesus, and I have no interest in following after him and obeying him and submitting my life to him. I'm just going my own way. My prayer from the very beginning is that if that be true of you, that you would flee to Jesus Christ. That you would run to him, the only savior, the only mediator between God and men. I remember my Greek professor, Dr. John Sproul, speaking in our Greek class. I squeaked by, somehow got through Greek in in seminary. Um, But... I remember him as he was speaking about the present tense verbs that we have in the Bible. And he went to 1 John, where we have a number of them. I've marked my Bible everywhere we have verbs that are present tenses, and there's a lot of markings in 1 John here. And it's showing the character of a Christian. If we know that he is righteous, we know that everyone who has been born of him will practice righteousness, a present tense. He will be He will be practicing righteousness. His life will not be characterized by sin. He does sin, but his life is seeking to be holy, seeking to be righteous. And he told us that one year there was a man that was in his class. And as he was talking about the present tense verb, this man said, this isn't isn't me. 
And there in seminary, in Greek class, this man was saved and converted, studying about the present tense verb in Greek. Maybe that's you here today. And it's my prayer, our prayer, that you would come to know this Savior, Savior and the friend of sinners, that you might flee to him, call upon him to be your Savior, to save you from your sin, to save you from yourself, and make you to be one of his. That's our prayer. So here is this first certainty of life. It's a certainty of eternal life. Secondly, we see the certainty of answered prayer. Here is the promise that we have confidence and boldness in relationship to God. That we have the privilege to come before a holy God and to make requests before him. Now just think about that. Because of Christ, we have access to the Father, and we are able to make our requests known to him. That the God of the universe hears the prayers of his people. That ought to really astound us that he would stoop to hear our prayers. But this is what John says, verse 14. Now this is the confidence... There's another confidence that we have, that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So here is this confidence that we have. This is the fourth time in this epistle John has used this word, that we have confidence Two times he speaks about the confidence that a believer has when this world comes to an end, when Christ returns in the day of judgment. We have confidence in that day, in Christ, that we will not come under the wrath of God. We will enter into what Christ has prepared for us. Another time he talks about, similarly here, that we can ask whatever we, uh, we can ask of him and we will receive from him. And similarly, he asked this here, that we can, as children of God, that we can come to our Father and make our requests known to him. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks about this and says that just as earthly fathers love to give good gifts to their children, we do, don't we? We love to give good gifts to our children. And Jesus said, if your children would come and ask of you, that you would give to them a bread, piece of bread, would you give them a stone? And of course the answer is no. If you're a good father, you wouldn't do that. Or if they would come and ask of you a fish, would you give them a servant? No, you love your sons and you would give them good gifts. And Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly father give you also good gifts to those who ask of him. And we have the privilege of coming and asking of good things of our heavenly Father. Now notice that he gives here a qualification. 
And he says in verse 14 that if we ask anything according to his will, sometimes you listen to these preachers on TV and it's almost like, you know, you just come with anything you want and you just name it and claim it and it will be yours. God's going to sign this check and you just fill in the amount. That's not what Jesus says here. If you ask anything according to his will, that he will hear and he will answer. And I think this is the will that God has revealed first of all in his word. What is his word? Where do we find his will? We find it in his word. Jesus said in John 15, 7 that we read, If you abide in me and my words... My words abide in you. The things that we have learned of Christ as they abide in you, you will ask what you will and you will ask what you desire. That's interesting. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. As the word of God, as we take in the word of God, as my words abide in you, you will ask, you will make your heart's desire known and God's word has affected our desires And so we are going to ask those things that we know God has promised to give to us. And so praying according to the will will of God is praying according to his word, the things that he has revealed to us. As we treasure and delight in his word and who he is as our father, and we learn about the good things that he will give to us, we ask those things, and we know that he will hear us. In James 4, James says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Sometimes our prayer list is full of carnal desires that we have that don't really reflect what we find in the word of God and godly desires. John tells us that as we pray, we must pray according to the will of God. Paul tells us, what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. You you want to know what the will of God is? The will of God is for your sanctification. That's what Paul says. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. I want to ask you, when you pray... Do you pray towards that end? A lot of times I think our prayer, our prayer list gets imbalanced. It's lopsided. There's a lot of things that we pray about that are often just temporal and physical needs, and we can pray about those things. But often what is missing are we praying about things that we find in the Word of God. I need to be more holy. I need to be more loving. I need to be more patient. I need to be more long-suffering. A homework assignment that I would give you for this week is to go to 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love, or go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, and make that to be your prayer list. God, make me to be more loving. May this fruit be seen in me. Make me to be more joyful, not complaining and discontented and grumbling and mumbling, woe is me. Make me to be joyful and make me to be and know peace. 
to be contented in you. Pray through that. And that will help us, I think, as Christians, to pray according to the things that we find in the word of God. Jesus says, as we come to him, as we call upon him, as we seek him, as we knock, God will hear and answer our prayers. And we need to do this consistently, continually. It's not just a one, one, one time and that's it, but continually to make our requests known. I think there's another way that as we pray, there's God's revealed will and then there's God's providential will. I guess I, I called it his providential will. There are things that are not directly revealed in the word of God and we must learn to pray in light of God's providential dealings with us. And we have an example in Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. Remember that Paul says three times, I besought the Lord and asked that he would remove the thorn in my flesh. Whatever it was, it was hard, it was difficult, and three times I came to the Lord and I asked him to remove it. And guess what? The Lord didn't. The Lord said no. Paul, looking back, he says, I I know that God used this in my life because I had wonderful experiences caught up into the very presence of the Lord and to see him. And lest I become proud, there was this thorn in the flesh that God gave to me. And so we learn as Paul prays there, he, he says there that after he had pleaded with the Lord and the Lord didn't answer it, he submitted to his will. And he said, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness, Paul. Paul's response was, most gladly, therefore, I will boast in my weakness that Christ's power may be perfected in me. All right, Lord, I submit unto your will in this situation. I submit to it. You didn't answer my prayer, but I submit to your will. And Jesus taught us to pray this way, didn't he, in in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we grow as Christians, this is what we want. God, I want your will to be done. And we learn to pray this way. Lord, your will be done. And we learn to pray even as our Savior prayed. You remember in the garden. Father, if there's any possible way that this can be taken away from me, this cross, Christ knew the weight and the burden of what that cross meant. If there's any way to take that away, Lord, I ask that you would remove it. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. We have to learn to pray that as believers, following the example of Christ and of Paul. John Stott said that prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. 
Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, thy will be done. May God help us to so pray. And then we see, as we think about prayer, there is the mystery of prayer, is there not? How is it that God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish things? And God has so ordained that this is the way that things are done. It is through prayer. We are not to think, well, God's sovereign and he's going to accomplish what he has decreed from before the foundation of the world, so it's useless to pray. No, we should not come to that conclusion, even though that is true. God is working all things after the counsel of his own will that we are called to pray. And there's mystery here. And we pray and we say a prayer and, and God uses that in ways that maybe we can't see. And I want to read these words. I remember reading through 2 Corinthians and this, this caught my eye as I thought about prayer. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant brethren of our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Paul was in a hard place. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We are completely brought to an end of ourselves and our resources, and our only hope is in the God who raises the dead. But he goes on and says this, who delivered us. He delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also being together, uh, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul says that I was helped through your prayers. People praying far away from them, from him. I, I don't know how Paul knew that, but he knew that God had come to his aid and he knew that God had used their prayers. I have been helped through your prayers. How is it that we can pray for Olivia, who's in Spain, as she begins a new job, and that somehow God uses the prayers to accomplish his purpose. I don't know how. There's a mystery in that. But by faith, we understand that God uses prayer, the prayers of his people. He has ordained the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. And so we are called to pray. John goes on here to speak about one particular way that we can pray, and it's for a sinning brother. And uh, these are some of the most difficult verses in John. And time is gone here, and so I need to land the plane here for today. Um, so I think, I think I'm going to do this tonight. I want to do this passage tonight, and we'll finish up this section. And then next year, next, next year, next week, we will land the plane, Lord willing, and we'll finish First John. But as we close this morning, I invite